Good morning, church. Please open your Bibles to John chapter 3. Wow, what a great morning to get together to celebrate the resurrection of our Lord. Amen? Amen. Many of you are aware that this service joins dozens of others that are going on all over our town today, so I'd like to ask you before we get started this morning to bow with me and ask for the Spirit to impact those services as well as this one. Father, what a morning. Thank you so very much for all the gifts and the time and energy that's been spent on um, preparing a service where we could come together as one voice, one heart, one mind, and celebrate the resurrected one. We claim the promise that you have made us that the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead will give life to our mortal bodies. Father, please do that among us today. There are so many aspects of our life that need some life. Uh, that right now, they don't feel like anything but death. Uh, we realize we're not the only church who struggles with this, not the only Christians who struggle with it. So we lift up Faith Christian this morning, God, uh, one of our um, fellow disciple churches that's trying to uh, tell the world about this incredible event that took place today. Please bless their services. Uh, unite all of our hearts with all of those around the globe today who are lifting up the name of the resurrected one. We ask it in his name, and everyone said. Pat Fry is one of my favorite people. Uh, I'm not alone in that thought by a long shot. She is hilariously funny and probably one of the most humble servants that you will ever, ever meet. Here's an example of that. She told me this story not too long ago, and I've been waiting for the absolute perfect time to tell it. You be the judge if it fits. She said a couple of Wednesday nights ago, I just wasn't motivated to get all dolled up, and so I didn't put on any makeup at all, none. She said, I don't think the kids will notice anyway. She headed to class on Wednesday night, walked into class. She said, the glasses were on the top of my head. And Kay Jones, who was eight at the time, said, you look different tonight. What is that? She said, well, my glasses are on the top of my head, and I didn't put on any makeup, none. And he said, well, why would you do that? And she said, well, I, I'm a little bit lazy tonight, I guess. I just, I just didn't do it. He looked at her for a long time, and then he came back and said, well, you're not going to get a boyfriend like that. <laughs> Pat said, I turned to Renee, and she was just dying next to me. And I happened to feel my earlobe and realized I didn't have on earrings either. I pointed this out to Renee, and Carson, who was watching me, said, that's certainly not going to help things any. And Pat assured them both, I'll never make that mistake again. Here's the moral to that story and why I tell it. There are some things that are just not wise to leave home without. Amen. I'm going to talk to you this morning about something that I hope you don't leave this worship service without. At the very core of any relationship with Jesus Christ is something that I want to share with you. This church's mission it's everywhere. You can see it everywhere in our halls and out on the front sign. It's to lead ordinary people into an extraordinary relationship with Jesus. And if you wanted to, you could boil that down to two words. Substitutionary atonement. <laughs> some of you are going, you've been reading the dictionary again, haven't you? And some of you may be thinking, are we really going to talk about this? I bring a neighbor finally to church and you get all scholarly. Just hang on. Stay with me because I don't think it's going to be boring. I don't think it's going to, to be actually that challenged to get a hold of. As a matter of fact, I think when we're finished talking about 
substitutionary atonement this morning, a 10-year-old this morning could respond and know what that's all about. Let's look at the last word first, will you? Atonement. If you receive a speeding ticket for driving 45 in a 30, you're probably going to get dragged to traffic court unless you pay for that fine right off the bat. And if you get dragged to traffic court, 90% of the time, if not more, the judge is going to find you guilty and you'll have to pay it anyway. Now, if you pay for that, you will have atoned for your traffic ticket. Now, I don't know what a 45 and a 30 is going to cost you these days, but I do know what rolling a stop sign will cost you. So I've heard. $250, by the way. 45 and a 30, probably between 150, probably 200 bucks, but no matter what the figure, if you pay that fine, you will have atoned for that offense. And under our traffic justice system, that payment has to be made to satisfy justice. Let's go to the first word, substitutionary. We all understand the word substitute, don't we? When we were in elementary school and our teacher was sick or had to be away, the school would bring in a substitute teacher, right? And she would take our place of the regular teacher. Now the truth is some of us probably need to atone for how we treated our substitute teachers. Right, Chad Arns? All substitute means is taking the place of someone else. Now, when you put those two words together, substitutionary atonement, you understand the core of Christianity, the very essence of all that Christianity is about. Someone else paid the price that I should have paid. Now, that's not just the essence of Christianity. That's the differentiating idea that separates Christianity from any other major faith system literally in the world. In all other faith systems, and I don't mean to be an expert by that. I've spent some time studying that. I'm not a serious student of them, but I have spent some time comparing Christianity with those faith systems. And when I look into those faith systems, here's what I see. Wrongdoers must self-atone. You break the rules in most every religion I know of, you pay. Now, sometimes you need to pay by obeying an additional set of rules. And God forbid that you don't get those right because then you've got to go back to the starting point and do all of those things over again. And yet even when you've completed that, to be honest, it isn't clear whether you've obeyed the rules enough. Still yet in other religions, there are rituals that you must go through or you're out. In other religions, you have to make a pilgrimage or you'll pay for that forever. In others, you're going to be asked to light candles, give money, do penance, and you still never know if you've done enough. Now, here's where Christianity is unique among all the other world religions because God, listen to me, has arranged for someone else to atone when you break his rules. That is utterly unique. You're not going to find that in any other faith system in the world. Now, if you go down to Kerrville downtown, though, and gather 100 folks and say, well, what do you think this Christianity thing is all about? You're going to get a lot of different answers. Um, it's got something to do with that Bible, right? Um, it's, um, it's, it'll make you a better person, right? It's about going to church. It's about trying to be like Jesus. Well, it's about some of those things. But it's doubtful that many will say this. At its core, Christianity is about someone else paying a price I should have paid. But watch with me, if you will, over the next few minutes to see if that's not the common theme of literally this entire book 
In about 15 minutes, I'm going to take you through what may be the fastest walkthrough of Scripture you've ever been through in your life. But buckle your seatbelt because from the book of Genesis all the way through the book of Revelation, hopefully we're going to see this overarching theme of atonement in the Bible. Chapter 1. God's story kicks off and he creates Adam and Eve and he puts them in this lush garden. He says, okay, you guys have a blast. (laughs) Enjoy the place, name some animals, take care of the place, take care of one another. But I'm asking you one thing, don't eat of this tree over here. You can eat of any other tree, enjoy all the rest of the garden, but I'm asking you for for one, one honoring thing that you can do for me. Don't eat of this tree. Sure, they said. Everything went well for the longest, and even if you don't know much about the Scriptures, you know this. Eve is tempted by a deceptive snake, and she takes and she eats of the off-limits tree and its fruit. She gives some to Adam, and he eats, and instantaneously, an overwhelming sense of guilt, the Scripture says, and shame just fills their hearts. I mean, it pours over them. In an instant, they realize that they have dishonored the God that has made them and placed them in this garden. And they hide from him. They hide from him. We know what that's like. They hide from the God who created them and put them in this amazing place called Eden, gave them all the freedoms they could ever have imagined, and asked them not to do one thing. And they wound up doing that one thing. And mankind has suffered the consequences of that choice ever since, haven't we? Now, not only do they feel guilt and shame, they notice each other's guilt and shame. Where before they were comfortable with each other's nakedness, now they're not. God arrives and says, man, I've been looking for you all over the place. And Adam says, "Uh, God, there's been a problem, and I want to go on record. It's because of that woman you gave me. She gave me some of that fruit you said we shouldn't eat from, and what else could I do? But I had some. God says, Eve, what about this? She says, well, I'm going to go on record saying, there's this snake you created, you put in the garden, and he tempted me. There was no way I could say no, it seemed. And so I ate of it. Now, I know for some of you guys, all this talk about finger pointing and blaming doesn't really register, but we'll get through this part real quick. Next move. On God's part, stunning. Instead of letting these two have it, God goes off to the side, and God finds an animal, and he takes its life. And Adam and Eve are shocked because they've never experienced death to this point in their brief history in the world. And they're like, well, what did that animal do? God skins the animal, tans the skins, hide, and he covers them with it. And humanity, for the first time, is exposed to the reality of substitutionary atonement. Something innocent pays the price, taking the place of something guilty. Go a little further in Scripture, and God's people have grown into a nation of people. And they find themselves in slavery in a place called Egypt. You know this. So God calls a man by the name of Moses to deliver his people out of Egypt. And whether you've read the scripture and the story about this, you've probably seen the movie. A man by the name of Moses is called upon to deliver these folks. And the central part of his deliverance surrounds these ten plagues. They involve misery from frogs, locusts, gnats, hail, darkness, dead fish, biting insects, wild animals. Sing it with me. And a parch. No. The last plague, though, is the most miserable. So what involves death of a human being? 
God sent Moses to inform Pharaoh that the rebellion, the corruption, the violence of the region in Egypt had so stirred his wrath that it was a time for reckoning. And so God declares he is going to send an angel of death among the region, and regardless of nationality, race, gender, wealth, political party, the firstborn of every family is going to die. Israelite and Egyptian alike. But there's one opportunity for redemption. You know what this is. If you take the life of a lamb and take the blood of that lamb and you sprinkle it over the doorpost of that home, when God comes to that house, he will pass by that house. His wrath will not come upon that house when he sees the blood of that lamb. Something innocent would pay the price taking the place for someone who was guilty. And you know what most of the Egyptians said to Moses when he said that this is what was going to happen. They said, Moses, you got sand in your brain, buddy. You got your God, I got my God. You got your truth, I got my truth. Not interested. But most of the Israelites said, listen, we know God. And we know that he is good, but from time to time, he has enough of our rebellion to the point that he gets in judgment mode and steps in to clean some stuff up and to remind people his ways are to be respected and honored or else. You've seen it in the movie, the or else happens. The angel of death actually comes over the land, and when that angel sees the blood on that doorpost, it passes right by it. The wrath of God passes right by it, just like Moses had promised it would, and the life of the firstborn is spared. And the Egyptians who blew that off, and maybe even some of the Israelites who blew that off, they lost their firstborn child. And the scripture says there was a sound of wailing heard in the land that had never been heard before. can't help but think of a 12-year-old boy who on the night that the death angel visited that region followed his dad out to a herd of sheep and he sees his dad with a knife and they, they just got through eating lamb a couple of, they don't need to kill another one and he says help me with this and he slits the lamb's throat he says, dad I, I, I don't understand why are we doing this he said so that you live through the night but, but what did the lamb do we don't need food he says I know but God's asked us to do this. I don't know exactly what his answer was to that question, but all throughout Scripture, I do know this, there is this thread of a sacrificial system. When people fouled up and they knew they did, they would take a lamb and they would bring it to the temple area and that priest would offer it as a sin sacrifice. If they were poor, something smaller, maybe a dove, maybe a pigeon, but something, listen to me, something innocent would pay the price taking the place of something that was guilty. Then there was a day of atonement. This is the biggest day on the Jewish calendar. I don't know what holiday was your favorite, but this was the biggest day. There may have been the Feast of Tabernacles as we talked about last week because that had a lot of fun to it. This was serious. Serious. And every Jew had this encircled on their calendar because it had an incredible impact on their people. What happened on this special day, the high priest would take a goat and he would kill it as a sin offering to offer for all the people. And then another goat was brought in. Kind of a one-two punch of substitutionary atonement. Another goat is brought in and it was kind of wild. He would come in and the priest would take his hands and he would place it right on the head of that goat. And he would say, by the power of God, I place all of the sin of this nation on this goat. 
all of the wrongdoing and the shame and the guilt, every unrighteous act, thought, or deed I place on this goat. The selfishness, the arrogance, the slander, the deceit, all of it I place on this goat. And I send this goat now out into the wilderness, taking your sins of the nation away with him into the wilderness. Something innocent would be taking the place for someone guilty. Now, I don't know if both goats died, most likely out in the wilderness, almost any unprotected animal would. But God was trying to get a message across to his nation of people. Sin is this serious. Someone or something always pays a price for our sin. Someone or something always pays a price for our selfishness, our arrogance, our prejudice, our deceit. You experienced that this week, didn't you? I did. Some of the ways that I spoke or acted, they didn't just affect me. They affected the people that were around me, people that had nothing to do with my day and what was going on inside me. But they paid a price. God wants us to understand that sin's always serious. I hope by now you're beginning to get the idea that the sacrificial system was central to every aspect of God's people, God's story, all throughout the Old Testament. An innocent suffers for the guilty. So, it probably shouldn't be a surprise then when we come to the writings of the New Testament, a Billy Graham kind of character comes on the scene. His name's John the Baptist. And one day he's standing by a river, and he is preaching his heart out about repentance and about turning their life from, from living for themselves and living towards God, when all of a sudden he sees Jesus for the first time, and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now, that may not mean much to you, but I'm telling you, for every Jew worth his kosher salt, it struck a nerve. You mean the lamb of sacrifice? Wow, it's hard enough to think about a lamb being sacrificed. You're talking about him, a person, being sacrificed? Well, days later, Jesus starts his teaching ministry and begins to draw crowds like crazy because the guy could preach. Passion, authority, and then to add to that, miracles, the guy could walk up to someone whose eyes had been closed their entire life, boom, opened. Walk up to another guy whose legs were crippled, boom, walking again. Walks up to a dead son, literally on his way to his own funeral because he's dead, like on the stretcher dead. And he says, take that stretcher down. And he literally lifts that son up and he and his mom go home and have some burgers, something. That's why men and women left their homes and places of employment to follow this guy because they thought he was the Messiah. They thought he was the guy to come in and run Rome out of town. Finally, the earthly kingdom would be reestablished. Israel would be in the midst of its glory days again. Jesus did his best to squelch talk like that every time it came up. He kept saying, that is not why I came. I did not come to play politics. I didn't come to build an earthly empire. Listen to me. The Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, that's the central thought of this entire message, so I'm going to ask you to help me reinforce it, okay? Let's read it together as a church. The Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, that was weak. We can do better on Easter. Here we go. The Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. That's substitutionary atonement. And the disciples hated that kind of talk. As a matter of fact, one of them got so boisterous one day, Peter bows up and says, you need to hush. Lord, um, over my dead body, they, 
take your life. Over my dead body, you give your life for somebody else. And Jesus says, that's Satan talk. And you're in my way with that kind of talk. To drive this home at the very last supper, the very last meal he would ever share with his disciples before he died. They're celebrating this major feast we talked about earlier, the Passover one, where death passed over homes because that blood was sprinkled over the doorposts. In the midst of celebrating that meal, he takes a loaf of bread and he, he tears off a piece of bread and he holds it up to the disciples where they can see it. And he says, no longer is this a bread of the past, of the memory of what God's done in the past. This is meant to remember me and my body given for you. Then he picked up a glass of wine and he said, this is no longer to remember the blood, that blood that was sprinkled over the doorpost. No, this is about my blood. My blood poured out for you. No more lambs to be remembered. I am the sacrificial lamb that I'm wanting you to remember next time that you share in this meal together. Substitutionary atonement. The innocent was changing. It wasn't a lamb. It wouldn't be a bull. It wouldn't be any type of creature on four legs. It would be a two-legged creature, a human being whom God come came to make his home in. His name is Jesus Christ. True to his word, just as he predicted, a few days later, Jesus is arrested and he is sacrificed, not for sins he committed, but to pay the sin debt of every single man, woman, or child who's ever lived. And right at the end of his time on a cross, just before he takes his last breath, there is a, a crucial word that he speaks. Te telestai. Te telestai. With one of his last breaths, he speaks one, te telestai, it is finished. It's complete. It's an accounting term that really means paid in full, done, debt paid, settled. No more lambs, no more goats, not even another human because the sinless lamb of God paid our sin debt in full at a place called cross. That's why we call it good news. The Hebrew writer is going to hear about all that and later he's going to write this in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 10. Church, do you realize we've been made holy through that sacrifice? Through the body of Jesus Christ once and for all? They had to interpret that. They didn't understand the cross any more than the disciples did and it caused them to flee and go, this is, this is nonsense. This is impossible. And later the Hebrew writer writing about that, looking back on it, says, no, but it was, it was the once and for all sacrifice. They put an end to all other sacrifices that were necessary. Let's move on to the book of Revelation, which speaks to the end of this world as we know it. John the Apostle assures us there that a day of reckoning with us is coming. With us is coming. Now, you look like an intelligent group, so I'm not going to assume. I am going to assume. You probably know this. The, the death rate in America is still hovering at about 100%. Yeah, I, I figured we all aren't going to make it out of here. Well, I need you to know that this man who, who purposely came and put on a human body, lived a sinless life, called his death, called who was going to put him to death, experienced a resurrection, and then was seen by over 500 people. Do you know what that guy says about your future? Here it is. You're going to die, and then you're going to face a judgment. Now, I don't know whether some of you believe it or not, because some of you are probably a little skeptical about that. No, nope, doubt it. Well, a guy, again, who predicted his death and his resurrection, pulls it off, appears to over 500 people, says, you're going to die and you're going to face a judgment. I'd give that some serious thought. 
And that reckoning each of us is going to experience in some way, somehow, is going to involve the choices you're making right now. Man, I forget that. Walking through a Monday through another Saturday, Sunday, Monday through another Saturday, Sunday, I forget my choices are going to have to be accounted for. But Jesus says that's exactly what's going to happen. And the picture that God has given us about what that's going to look like is probably a little bit different than most of us have. Because I think most of us picture this black book that God has and he's going he's to go down through that on the day of judgment and look for our name there and go, oh yeah, there's sportsmen. And then he's going to get out of his calculator and he's going to start crunching some numbers. He's going to take all the good stuff that I've done in my life and all the, the really bad stuff that I've done in my life. He's going to plug that into his, his calculator. He's going to hit equals. And if the good outweighs the bad, I get to spend eternity with him. But if the bad outweighs the good, then I don't get to spend eternity with him. That's not at all what the scripture says is going to happen. Please understand this. On your final day, when you stand before a holy God, the question is not going to be whether you sinned or not sinned too much. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3 and verse 23 says. Psalms 130 says, If the Lord kept a record of sin, who in the world could stand? If it's based on our efforts, summarizing, we're toast. Now, on your final day, when you stand before God, the question is not going to be whether or not you sin or how often you sin or how spectacularly or unspectacularly you sin. The single question is this. Who will atone for your wrongdoing? Someone's going to have to satisfy the demands of justice in a cosmos that's created, listen to me, by a holy God. Not just some inanimate force, but a holy God created this place set it in motion. Here's the two options for the answer. Number one, you can choose to self-atone or you can choose Jesus as your substitutionary atoner. You can choose to self-atone or you can choose Jesus as your substitutionary atoner. Let's talk about the first one. Let's say you decide to choose the self-atone route. Here's what Jesus says about that choice. It will take you down a path that leads away from the Father, not towards it. It's a path of isolation. And if you choose the path of self-atoning, you will get a chance to self-atone for all of eternity in a place without love and good and kindness and gentleness and patience and faithfulness, anything beautiful, all of it removed. They call that hell. And Jesus talked more about hell than any other doctrine in the entire New Testament. <laughs> and then he adds a little mental picture that I think some of us write off. He says, if you choose that path, in the five seconds that God honors that choice, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now that almost sounds like a bad dental problem, doesn't it? You're going to wish it was a bad dental problem if you choose the self-atonement plan. I got a chance to experience the weeping and gnashing of teeth one time that I can remember. I was in Ruidoso, and I was with a, a church member, and we were in one of those emergency rooms with just a thin curtain across the way. And all of a sudden, this man codes. And they're a Mediterranean couple. You can tell by her dress more than anything else. And all of a sudden, I mean, they can't, they can't get him back to life. And her teeth clench, and out from her comes a wail that I've never heard in Western America. It was awful. Ooh, 
just went on and on, and they would come over and try to pat her and say they couldn't get her out of the chair. She just was wailing, and you could tell it was through her teeth. That's weeping and gnashing her teeth. And her, her body wasn't experiencing pain. Her heart was broken because she had lost her soulmate. She had lost something of great value to her, and she was never going to get it back, and it just erupted out of her and wailing and just through the teeth. The Bible says right after you decide that you're going to self-atone, when you stand before the judgment seat, that's what's going to happen. Which is why God says, choose the Jesus atonement plan, okay? Please. Please. There's another plan, not the self-atonement plan, but the substitutionary atonement plan. The someone else takes my place atonement plan. You see, Scripture is clear which God, which path God hopes you choose. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9 says this, The Lord is patient with you, not wanting anybody to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. I know you doubt that some days. I know when you hear the word judgment and the fact that we're going to have to give an account that there really is this kind of stern God up there, this kind of God who tries to catch us doing things. He hates that. It's the last thing he wants to do. It's the last thing I want to do as a father. No. His heart breaks for those who are self-atoners. It's the last place that he wants. Scripture also says, I take no delight in the death of the wicked. None. None. As a matter of fact, in Revelation, God writes to a church in Laodicea, the Laodicea Church of Christ. He says, you've assembled under the name of Christ, but actually you're still attempting to win my favor with a self-atonement plan. You're relying upon your wealth and good deeds instead of Christ's wealth and good deeds. You want to wear your clothes of righteousness instead of his clothes of righteousness. You're trying to see life through your terms and through your vision, not his terms and his vision. You guys are so upside down, you don't know hot from cold. And you're neither. You're still living under the self-atonement plan. But listen to me. I'm standing at the door of my church and I'm asking, will you open it up and let me in? Will you please let go of the self-atonement plan? Will you please allow me to come inside and we'll sit down and we'll have a meal. We'll have fellowship like you've never imagined. He says all that to a church. Let me tell you when I opened the door for Jesus to come into my life. It's October the 23rd, 1971. Thanks to Ray Hughes, who was a coffee, Folgers coffee salesman. He was my junior high Bible class teacher, and I can assure you, like most of you who've been junior high Bible class teachers, he didn't think we were listening to anything he was saying. But I was. On one particular day, he was talking about how I could get my sins forgiven for every wrong that I committed then and would ever commit. One day he was talking about how God's Spirit could move inside me and help me live a life that God had always planned for me to live. All by believing that at the cross, Jesus Christ paid the price for my sin debt so I wouldn't have to try and pay it on my own. And I told him after class, I said, I, I believe what you were talking about with all my heart. What do I do with this? And he said, well, if you truly believe that, the first thing God wants from you is this, to go public with that faith, to call on the name of Jesus Christ in baptism. And I said, well, why? He said, because it's in that death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus that makes your sin debt paid 
By faith, when you were baptized, you were entering into both his death and his resurrection. And when you do, the end result is life. Now, I had to give that some thought. Remember, I'm only 11. Two weeks, as a matter of fact. And then I went public in a place like this and said, count me in. And I opened the door of my heart to welcome him into my life. Now, I didn't know it then, but I was giving up the self-atonement plan for the substitutionary atonement plan. So I want to I ask you a question. Do you remember a time like that? Can you remember where you were when the gospel of Jesus hit your heart and the light bulb came on? And you went, wait a minute. You mean it's not about my effort to make things right with God? It, it's not about me self-atoning. It's accepting and trusting in Jesus' efforts to atone for me, yes. Do you remember where you were when you went public with that? And you said, I, 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 I want to attend my own funeral, gladly having God's Spirit wash away my sins and to fill me with His Spirit. If you can't remember a day like that, could this be your day? Is that why on, on this day, at this time, you're in this place to hear this message? Friend, there's a gap between you and the perfection of a holy God. And if maybe this morning that's weighing on you like you've never experienced that before, I want you to know I get that. Even after I took on the, the Jesus atonement plan, the substitutionary atonement plan, I still feel like on some days, I, I'm not there. And God says, good, no, you, you can't get there on your own. It's still with me. It wasn't just with me back then when you traded plans. It's still now. I do this, not you. I do this, not you. Jerry Pierce took up the Jesus atonement plan. Don Barnett, Serena. Gail Sportsman, Jeff and Debbie, because they realized not in a hundred lifetimes could I bridge that gap between my unholiness and God's holiness. No way, no how. And so they chose to have Jesus pay their sin debt and pull. Now, in almost every religion in the world, when you offend the deity that's worshipped in that religion, that deity stays where he is and he condemns you. But when you offend the God of the Christian faith, he sends down his son to meet you right where you are, my friend. And he opens your eyes to the atoning work of Christ, and he invites you to take advantage of the substitutionary atoner. He died on your behalf. Here's what the scripture says about it. Don't take my word. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. So whoever, I love that, whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they've not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. There may not have been an entire preacher in his entire life who quoted that passage maybe more than Billy Graham, who died just a couple of weeks ago. There may not have been an entire preacher in all of history who preached the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ like Billy did. And at the end of every one of his services, he had a favorite invitation song that he sang. You remember what it was? Just as I am. I think the Church of Christ borrowed that. Because, man, it used to be the only song that we ever sung for an invitation most of our Sundays. What a great song, though. And then he would challenge people when they were singing that song and getting ready to do that to make a decision about trusting in their ability to self-atone or to trust Jesus' ability to be the substitutionary atoner. Now, I want you to know I am no revivalist. 
that's not my calling. God gave me a pastor's heart, not an evangelist's heart. But today, I'm going to do my best to help you focus for just a minute on where you stand with this idea of substitutionary atonement. If you've got one of these uh, pieces of paper, would you go ahead and pull them up? We put them all over the church, did the best we could. We got some guys that have walked down the aisles. If you don't have one of these, if you're 10 years old or older, please pick this up. If you're under 10 years old, please hand this to somebody who's looking for one, all right? If you've got something to, to, to write with, pull that out of your wife's purse. There's some, there's some pins in the pew in front of you, those, one of those pew pocket things. Pull those out. This is going to take about six minutes, guys, so don't panic. Even if you're a believer, even if you have chosen the Jesus substitutionary plan, I'm going to invite you to go through this with us as a refresher and maybe even a recommitment to this one who's paid your sin debt so you don't have to. Here's what I'm going to ask you to do. There's a circle there. looks like an Easter egg. My secretary loved these. I wanted a box. She said, no, we'll do an Easter eggs. So there's a circle there, and I'm just going to ask you this. If you can identify with that statement I'm about to read, check it, all right? Here we go, statement number one. <clears throat> I freely acknowledge that I have not lived up to the perfect moral standards of a holy God. If you believe that, go ahead and check that circle. I freely acknowledge that I have not lived up to the perfect moral standards of a holy God. Let me ask a question. Look up here, guys. Is that true of you? Is there anybody here who's going ahead and claiming perfect today? Then I want to meet a family member of yours, and we're going to talk. Because when we start talking, <clears throat> they will have convinced me you've lied, and you're not perfect anymore, all right? You may not be able to check any other circle, but I bet you can check that one. Please do. Number two. I understand that my wrongdoing must be atoned for to satisfy the demands of God's justice. Do you believe that? If you do, check that box. God cannot just wave a magic wand and poof, our sin is gone. In a cosmos that's ruled over by a holy God, not some unnamed, unidentified force, but a holy God. Someone has to atone, he says, to satisfy the demands of his justice. Check that circle if you agree with that. Here's number three. I hereby soundly reject the self-atonement plan. Now, this is the hinge circle of the entire document there. I hereby soundly reject the self-atonement plan. At some point in your life, you have to abandon the self-improvement plan and the self-atonement plan. And here's the moment when you realize the futility of standing before a holy God with your good works and your good intentions. If you know what that feels like, if you've experienced that before, if you're experiencing it now, please check that box. Number four, I humbly trust that Christ's atoning work be applied for my wrongdoings. Friend, you could have understood everything that I've said about this topic today, maybe in this message today. Some of you could preach this message better than me. But if you haven't trusted that Jesus Christ's atoning work is enough, that yours will never be enough, then his sacrifice will not be applied to you. If you're still going to be going to God on the self-atonement plan, not going to work. But if you're this morning ready to say, by faith, I trust his atonement takes care of my atonement needs, then check that box. Romans 4 and verse 21 says, Abraham, the father of faith, was fully persuaded that God's promises were true and that him banking on that put him in a place where God uses a powerful word, justified. Just in him believing it, just in him trusting it, all of a sudden God starts doing a work in him of justifying and renewing and saving and making him whole. 
And God will do the same thing with you, but you've got to be able to check that circle. Then number five, here we go. I gladly demonstrate my trust by being baptized into Christ, turning my life over to Him. Why do we do that? Because it's an expression of our faith. It's our insides leaking out, not just for us to acknowledge, but for the whole world to acknowledge. And here's what's powerful about that. In some mysterious way, you partook a while ago of the blood and the, and the bread of Jesus Christ, the life, the body, all of that. In some mysterious way, the Scripture says that took place. Well, the same thing happens back here. In some mysterious way, Romans 6 promises that every one of us who is buried with Christ in baptism is buried into his death. And when we're raised out of that water miraculously, mysteriously, if we're baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, then he saves us. Oh, preacher, you're just making it up. No, listen to the word of God. Here we go, Romans 6. Put that up there, guys. Don't you know that all of us who were baptized in the Christ were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism in the death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might have life. Now here's where we're going to this scripture. For if, those of you guys who are 60, 70, 80, 90 years old, you're closer to that day of uh, reckoning, that day of judgment than any of us here, for if we've been united with him in a death like his, we will what? Certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Certainly. Not maybe, not kind of, sort of. I wonder if I've done, whoa, 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 going down a wrong path there. He'll take care of that, all right? He'll take care of that. Have you responded with faith to that? If you have, Jesus wants you to trust your sin debt, listen to me, paid in full. I'm just one voice. Will you help me with that? Paid in full. One more time. Paid in full. We're going to sing two verses of that song Billy loved. And to be honest, Jimmy Sportsman loves. Just as I am. Without one plea. Because I don't have one. Not standing before the holiness of God. But that thy blood was shed for me. If you want to get in on this substitutionary atonement plan today, I'm going to ask our elders right now to go ahead and move to their stations that we pointed you to earlier. Guys, go ahead. These shepherds not only believe in prayer, they believe in the Jesus substitutionary atonement plan. And if you checked off those boxes today and you said, all right, count me in, and you've not given yourself to Christ, these guys want to help you do that. And so we're going to stand and sing two songs, two verses of the song. So go ahead and do that right now, would you? Raymond's going to be making his way up here. And if there's something else in your life and you thought while well, I go, oh, I wish I would have found one of these elders to have them wrap their arms around me and pray over me, I so need to hear someone else asking with me the things that are on my heart. This is a great time for that. We call this our invitation time. And there couldn't be a better invitation. Don't you let Satan keep you in that pew. If today's the day you say, I want to walk out of here knowing painful. Let's sing, church.